Good afternoon, Memorial Baptist friends and family, and welcome back to our midweek edition of our podcast uh, for July 29th, 2020. I hope everyone's having a great week this week. Um, I want to give a shout out to my beautiful wife, Tracy. Today is her birthday, so happy birthday, sweetheart. (laughs) I'm not exactly sure what she sees in me, but I'm so glad that she sees it. (laughs) Uh, We had a very blessed Lord's Day this past Sunday. Our worship team did another great job leading us in worship. Corey and Skylar, Casey and Hannah, thank you for giving your time, your talents, your very best to our God. He and He alone is worthy of our praise. And our church family participated and they sang with such enthusiasm. I'm looking forward to meeting again. Uh, at Memorial for worship in our worship center this Sunday, uh, August 2nd at 10.45 a.m. This Sunday I'll be continuing in chapter 1 of the the book of James, preaching about the power of the Word of God. I hope to see you there this Sunday. Uh, We are continuing to monitor and evaluate our community and our area as we seek God's wisdom with respect to our ministry at Memorial Our deacons and leadership met last night to discuss our reopening plan and what adjustments uh, might need to be made. Uh, Due to the continued climb of confirmed COVID cases in our area, uh, we will continue to meet for worship on Sunday with social distancing, uh, masking up, and and hand sanitizing as necessary protocols. Uh, We are hosting a midweek prayer service on Wednesday evenings at 6 p.m., and Brother Jeff, as well, was is leading a time for our youth uh, to get together at 6 p.m. on Wednesday. Um, but at this point, we don't have any children's ministry uh, on Sunday morning or Wednesday evenings. We will continue with our current pattern, and our leadership will meet every couple of weeks to revisit and update our reopening plan. And as we are safely able to do so, we will continue to seek to add more ministry uh, for our church. As I've said before, <clears throat> excuse me. If you have questions or concerns, please call us. Um, I know this is not easy for any of us. We're trying to keep our people and our most vulnerable ones safe as we open up slowly and cautiously. And again, if you have questions or concerns, please call us. Um, each of us should assess our own risk individually and in relation to our own families. And I would say, please exercise the freedom and good sense to do what you need to do, uh, extending grace to others as they do the same. And now, before we jump into our scripture passage for this afternoon, I'd like to pray together, and if you would, pray with me while I lead us in prayer. Loving Father, thank you for your presence with us each and every day. Thank you for the rain that you sent, that nourishes your creation. Thank you for making us the promise that even as the rain waters the earth and accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it, so your word goes forth and will accomplish exactly what you desire it to accomplish. What a great promise. Thank you, Father. Lord Jesus, we ask specifically that you would be with those who are sick right now with the coronavirus. I ask for healing for Kyle, uh, Tanner, and his family. Pray that you'd protect little Cooper from this virus. 
I lift up Arch Kuntz and I ask for healing and his release from the hospital so that he can return home to his wife, Gail. Father, I lift up all of our frontline workers, the nurses, the doctors, those who are treating those that uh, have contracted this virus. I pray that you would uh, keep them healthy, keep them rested, keep them safe. Father, I lift up those who are grieving within our family, our church family, those who have lost loved ones recently. I pray for the Autry family, the Marshalls. I lift up the bridges to you. God, you know the needs before we even ask. So please supply the grace, the comfort, the peace to each of these. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be with our homebound members and our friends that are in nursing and care facilities. I ask that your presence would be with them right now in a very special way. That they would sense your presence with them in these challenging days. Father, provide for them. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give your people special boldness in these days, that we would share the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ with others who may have never heard. Holy Spirit, pour out upon our sons and daughters like your word says. Father, send through your Spirit a soul-drenching revival just like a summer downpour that soaks everything outside. Father, do this for your kingdom and for your glory. Lord, we pray over the many hours of video and video editing that has taken place for our our virtual vacation Bible school that's to take place this next week. Father, honor the time, redeem the time, I'm asking that the parents of these children would take these materials and invest your word into these precious children so that they might come to know you and know you better. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Make it so for each of these families. And Lord Jesus, even so, come quickly. We long for the day when you restore all of creation, reconciling it back into yourself. For you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is none beside you. You are our Savior, our Maker, our Redeemer, and our friend. Thank you for loving us so much that you gave your life on the cross so that we might be redeemed for all eternity reconciled, atoned as children, as sons and daughters of Almighty God. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord, and it's in His name we pray. Amen. So now we're going to continue on in uh, our study of the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8. If you have your scripture and would open up to that passage, um, Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to read the entire uh, chapter. It's 13 verses. You know, one of the basic purposes of the book of Hebrews is to show how Jesus Christ is superior to the whole Mosaic system, including the Old Testament priesthood, law, sacrifices, tabernacle, and so forth. These Hebrew professing Christians uh, 
were not so sure that Christ was superior to the Mosaic system. And some were thinking about leaving Christianity and going back into Judaism. So the author of the book of Hebrews sets out to show that Christ is better. That he's better than the Levitical priesthood and its sacrifices. And that Christ is superior to the Mosaic law from which the Levitical priesthood uh, received or derived its authority. You know, in chapter 7, it has been proven that Christ, uh, as an eternal person, has an eternal priesthood, and that Christ is constantly and forever praying for his people, found in verse 25. It says, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, he's pleading his blood, his own blood before the Father, that when we sin, and he he is praying that our faith as God's children will not fail and that we would persevere to the end. But now the author must prove to these doubting Hebrew Christians that Christ has a better place of worship and a better authority for his priesthood than the Old Testament priests. The author explains that Christ's ministry takes place in a heavenly sanctuary and his heavenly priesthood has its authority from the new covenant, not from the Mosaic covenant. This is key. And this is key in regards to to who Jesus is and how much better the new covenant is than the old covenant. He starts off in verse 1 talking about a better position. It says, now the main point, I'm in Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. See, Christ's priesthood is in heaven and not in an earthly tabernacle. For Christ, through his resurrection and ascension, sits on the right hand of the Father on his throne. Christ has a better position than any earthly priests of the Old Testament. I love this. Because it says, it's talking about Christ, and, and he is a high priest who sits on a heavenly throne. <laughs> I, I, this is so significant. I mean, notice that Christ sits on his throne. The Old Testament Levitical priests always stood and never sat down because their work for sin was never finished. But Christ sat down, proving He had once and for all and forever solved the sin problem, my sin debt, through his death. See, so Christ is on his throne. He's the king slash priest and the exalted one who is high and lifted up and he alone is deserving of our worship. He has a better position. Notice verse 2. It says, A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched. 
not man. So he has a better position. He has a better sanctuary. Christ does not minister in an earthly tabernacle, but he ministers in a heavenly tabernacle, which has the backing of God, not man. Man, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about this stuff. Better position, better sanctuary. Verse 3 through 5 talks about a better sacrifice. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the temple for, quote, see, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. See, on earth, Christ could have never offered animal sacrifices because the Mosaic law said a person had to be of the a priest of the order of Levi in order to order up, offer up sacrifices. But Christ was from the order of Melchizedek. And he offered up himself as his own sacrifice. And this sacrifice is being pleaded before the Father in heaven. See, the whole Levitical priesthood was but a copy or a, a shadow I mean, I like to think of a Xerox copy of the original, okay, which anticipated the reality, Christ, who was to come. The Old Testament priesthood as a type pointed forward to Messiah, and now that he has come, there is no need for the Mosaic law or the Levitical priesthood. See, Exodus 25, 40 is quoted here to show how Moses was given specific instructions on the assembly of the tabernacle. Why? It was a type, excuse me, it was a type of Christ's heavenly sanctuary. This proves that the Levitical building and its service were not the final reality, but an earthly replica of a higher and better reality. I love that. See, God said that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Do it because you're making a pattern, a copy, a shadow of, of a, the reality that is in Christ. It goes on to talk about a better covenant. So we've got the, the, the better um Position, better sanctuary, better sacrifice, and now a better covenant. Look at verse 6, and we're going to read down through 13. It says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. 
for finding fault with them, he says, quote, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me. From the least of, to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. See, Jesus Christ, he receives his authority from his priesthood, not from the old covenant, not from the Mosaic law, but from the new covenant. Jesus Christ, through his death, has become the guarantee of a better covenant. If you look back in chapter 7, verse 22, it says, So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Jesus himself is the guarantee of a better covenant. See, this covenant is now in operation because his priesthood is now in operation. Jesus Christ is the one mediator of this new covenant, according to 1 Timothy 2.5. And Christ is better than Moses, who was the human mediator of the old covenant under the Mosaic law. The new covenant has all the promises of salvation guaranteed by Jesus Christ, the mediator for those he represented in his death. So how does the new covenant have better promises? Well, we know that the Old Testament saints had the promise of eternal life, but this promise was connected to the, um, the covenant with Abraham and not with the Mosaic covenant. The promises of the Mosaic law pertain mainly to earthly things as related to uh, what I want to call national blessings. But in the new covenant, the promise of spiritual blessing becomes the principal idea. In the new covenant, the mind is directed to heaven, the heart cheered with hopes of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. You see, the, the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, could never give the forgiveness of sins or eternal life. And many Jews, filled with pride, thought that the law could give life and forgiveness, but they were mistaken. Why? Even the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they only covered one sin until Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, would come and die for their sins. 
Hebrews 9, chapter 9, verse 15, says, For this reason, He, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. See, but now the old covenant has been done away with since the new covenant has come. Look at verse 7. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. See, the Mosaic covenant, the one, the covenant with Moses, was holy, it was just, and it was good. The weakness of the law was not in the law, but in humanity. Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. See, the fault was not, excuse me, the fault was that the law did not have the power to work on the inside of a person. The law only condemned men, but never saved them or sanctified them. The very fact that there was a second covenant given shows that the first covenant was temporary and would be superseded by the new covenant. See, if the Mosaic law, that first covenant, had accomplished all things necessary for our redemption, then Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, would never have mentioned another covenant. But this in verse 8 is the beginning of a quote from Jeremiah 31, uh, verses 31 through 34, where the new covenant is first mentioned as a prophecy yet to be filled. And the purpose for quoting Jeremiah 31 is to show there is a new covenant which makes the old covenant obsolete and ineffective. I want to read out of Jeremiah 31, uh, verses 31 through 34, and it says this, and this is prophecy yet to be filled in, in Jeremiah's time. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the, the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities and their sin. I will remember no more. It's clear that this new, new covenant was to be made with Israel and Judah. The new covenant primarily deals with the forgiveness of sins for sinners based on the atonement, the blood atonement of Christ's sacrifice 
So in the context of Jeremiah 31, it deals with the forgiveness of Israel. However, the book of Hebrews, especially Hebrews 8, tells us that the new covenant is not only for believing Israel, but also for the church. I seem to be confident in the fact that there will be a future and total fulfillment of the new covenant to national Israel in or around the the second coming of Christ. But right now the church is partaking of these spiritual blessings and the power of the new covenant. See, the new covenant was prophesied in Jeremiah 31 but it found its official enactment at the death of Christ. See, the first mention of the New Covenant in the New Testament was the night of the Passover supper before Christ was put to death the next day. Christ told his disciples that his shed blood was the official enactment of the New Covenant and that Christians are to remember the New Covenant by partaking of the fruit of the vine, drinking of the cup at the Lord's table. Luke 22, verse 20 says, And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In Matthew 26, verse 28, This is my blood of the covenant, which is to be shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins. The Lord's disciples were all Jews, and knew the Old Testament well. And they knew they would have immediately connected our Lord's teaching with Jeremiah 31. They were told that the new covenant was to provide the forgiveness of sins for you, for the disciples, and for many, all who trust in Christ. See, the blessings of the new covenant are for all who believe in Christ and his death for them, even I want to say the Old Testament saints. I mean, that's what Hebrews 9.15 was talking about. The new covenant is definitely applied to the church. And without it, we would have no forgiveness of our sins. Over in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15 and following, it says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. I want to say that's the church, to us, the believers. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and put and upon their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So today, the church is a branch that is grafted in, partaking of the salvation blessings of the new covenant. You might say the church is the the spiritual seed of Abraham, but that does not mean that God is finished with Israel, national Israel, the nation. The church as the spiritual seed, if you will, of Abraham does not preclude the fact that there will yet be a future application for the new covenant to national Israel. See, in Romans chapter 11, it seems that all Israel shall be saved. And the context seemed to indicate 
physical Israelites living at that time. And the new covenant will be applied to literal Israel and Judah at the second coming of Christ. See, the new covenant is for the church and his promise in Hebrews 8 is to be applied to the church. It is also clearly taught that Christians in the church are ministers or servants of the new covenant. In 2 Corinthians 3.6 says, Who also made us adequate as servants of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. See, Christians are to preach Christ and His death for sin and for sinners, which is the basis of the new covenant from which God forgives sin. Look at verse 9. It says, Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. The new covenant is not in any way like the old covenant. The new covenant is not the, I want to say, reformation of the old, or the rejuvenation or uh, of the old, or the amplification of the old. The new covenant completely supersedes or takes the place of the old covenant. You know, the Mosaic law. Christ didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. It is impossible to mix the law of the old covenant with the grace of the new covenant. See, in Christ, we have a new heavenly tabernacle, a better sacrifice, a new priesthood, a new ministry, a new covenant, a new mediator, and better promises. Moving on in verse 10, it says, For this is the covenant which I made with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law into their minds. I will write them upon their hearts. See, the new covenant is, is the basis for regeneration. Through the new birth, God implants His truth in the hearts and minds of all true believers. See, in Judaism, the Mosaic Law was written on tablets of stone, and it remained on the outside of the Jew. He gave external obedience, but it was powerless to save him or to sanctify him. But in the gospel, which is based on the new covenant, the law of God is written by the Holy Spirit upon the believer's heart. The new covenant makes God's truth internal. It makes it powerful. It makes it transformational. See, the external law which ministered death is replaced by the internal gospel of grace which brings life, new life. God will also regenerate the nation of Israel around or at the second coming of Christ. The second half of verse 10 says, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The new covenant is the basis for a new relationship. Believing Israel in the Old Testament did know God. They did know God. And they were God's people. But the new covenant has brought new intimacy not known in the Old Testament. Jehovah of the Old Testament is now referred to by believers in the church as Father. And true believers are no longer called the children of Israel, or, but they're called sons of God, heirs of God, co-heirs with Jesus, 
friends and children. We are part of the family. See, the new covenant is the answer for man's search for identification and and hunger to belong to someone. The new covenant gives people the answer to the aching question of the human heart. Who am I? And who can I identify with? God says that through Christ and His death, all people who trust Christ belong to God and, and are identified with Him forever. One day, physical Israel as a nation will also again have a restored relationship to God at the second coming of Christ. Verse 11 says, And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizens and everyone his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. See, the new covenant is the basis for a new priesthood of believers. In the Old Testament, only the priest could approach God in the tabernacle. But in the new covenant, now all true believers are believer priests and can approach God and know Him on an intimate basis. I love it when First Peter, Peter says in First Peter uh, chapter 2, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Through their great high priest, each believer priest has immediate access to God. I mean, have you ever thought about this? One thing a true Christian can never say to another true believer is know the Lord. All Christians everywhere, all believers everywhere know the Lord, for that's part of the new covenant. See, there is also a day coming when all Israel will also know the Lord. When that last generation of Jews before the second coming come to Christ. See, verse 12 says, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The new covenant is the basis for all forgiveness of sins. And all who have appropriated the death of Christ for sins shall be saved. See, the main purpose of the new covenant is to forgive sins. Ephesians 1, 7 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. See, the true church is founded upon the new covenant and the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. When God saves a person in Christ on the basis of the new covenant, he not only forgives his sins, but he forgets the sins done. God does not remember the sins of the sinner who come to Christ for forgiveness. <laughs> So wonderful, so marvelous, so glorious, so mysterious is the work of the Lord Jesus for sin and sinners that God forgets about our sins as far as the east is from the west. God will never remind you of any wrong thing you ever did before you were saved because he alone has the power 
to blot out sin out of his own memory. See, if God has forgotten your sins and forgiven your sins, we too must forget them and push on toward Christ. There is a day coming when the nation of Israel shall have its sins forgiven, when God brings them into Christ. The new covenant is grounded on the blood of Christ. And we can sing as did the hymn writer, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Hallelujah. You know, verse 13, wrapping this up, says, When he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. See, the new covenant made the first covenant obsolete. God declared the Mosaic law and the Levitical priesthood defunct and inoperative in A.D. 33 at the moment of Christ's death. However, the temple in Jerusalem still stood for 37 more years, but the temple was finally destroyed in A.D. 70. This, is, this was the final blow to the Levitical system. See, the Old Covenant and its priesthood was earthly. It was temporary. It was temporal. But the New Covenant and its priesthood is heavenly, eternal, and permanent. Christ's priesthood is based on a better covenant with better promises. Oh man, that's good stuff. Folks, I just want to thank you so much for tuning in. And next week we'll continue on in our study of Hebrews. We'll be in chapter 9. And until we see each other, I just want to encourage you to stay safe, practice good hygiene, stay studied up in God's Word, eat well, but get some exercise too. And whatever you do, give all the praise and the glory and the honor to God that is due His name. We hope to see all of you real soon. God bless you and take care.